everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. My name is Thomas Hansen. I live in Oslo in Norway, and I've been working for uh, about 20 years with aging research, focusing on the psychological aspects of aging, and uh, with a particular view to well-being, loneliness, mental health, that kind of issues. I changed work last year, so now I work at the National Institute for Public Health at the Department of Suicide and Mental Health. I'm still very much interested in aging and uh, gerontological research. I've been publishing quite a bit on different topics, but for in different periods, I've been very interested in, in childlessness and uh, parental status and how, how parenthood uh, affects uh, well-being and how, how childlessness affects well-being and how the two statuses might affect uh, aging and uh, well-being in later life. I think I came into these topics from my own childlessness. I was uh, involuntary childless for a number of years and so that kind of spurred things on in terms of this research interest but interestingly perhaps after that I've had four kids so now I'm sort of at the, oh. at the opposite extreme of that so it started with two foster kids then uh, we had twins on top of that so what really got you into the intersection between well-being and happiness and old age like what was it that really prompted that for you well it wasn't like a childhood dream coming to fruition <laughs> it was more like a, a chain what of- was your childhood dream, Thomas? <laughs> Becoming a professional footballer, like everyone else. And then what happened? Well, partly because of my parents being psychologists, probably I ended up with psychology and then I got sort of a few jobs after that. And then uh, me and my wife traveled around the world for half a year. And then I came back and applied for a hundred jobs. I lived in Trondheim, further up north in Norway then. So I got two jobs and one of them was in Oslo. This was in gerontology. So is gerontology kind of like geriatrics? Is it like a part of that as you grow older? So it's looking at old age and well-being in that age group specifically. Well, in general, it's uh, sort of the same difference as psychology and psychiatrics in a way that uh, geriatrics looks at more like medical topics, whereas gerontology and social gerontology in particular looks at more like social psychological topics that's related to aging and the life course with a particular view on the second half of life, but not so much on old, old age, but more like what happens when people enter through the 50s, 60s and 70s. So I have a question now. I regarding when I guess you hit the 50s mark, most people say, you know, the older you get, the more health problems you have. In terms of that, do you believe that a lot of the time our health problems, especially around that age, kind of are exacerbated due to our external factors that influence or I guess, affect our mental health? It's an interesting question because you normally would think that somatic or physical health problems influence your later life well-being, but it can also be the other way around. So things can sort of loop and contribute to each other through this circle. What recent data show is that late life loneliness or loneliness in all age groups, actually, as well as mental health problems and lower quality of life can also give these feedback loops and contribute to different somatic and mental health problems. For example, depression and anxiety problems, but also more somatic health problems, which might be more of a surprise that loneliness can actually lead to a lot of cardiovascular problems, poor immune system, different illnesses. And when these problems are um, more chronic, they tend to compromise your physical health or they can do that. So especially in older adults, you see that chronic loneliness has these really detrimental effect on physical and mental health, which in turn, of course, exacerbates the social isolation and the mental health problems that were there to begin with. 
more like a feedback loop that's uh, quite uh, detrimental. Going off that, I actually do have a question about loneliness. How do you define loneliness? And a lot of people say, oh, it's all in your head. Loneliness is in your head because you could be in a big group with people, but you might still feel lonely. So exactly. yes, what? how do you define loneliness and what's the difference between being alone and loneliness? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, people tend to confuse the two. Also, some researchers and politicians, for example, in Australia, I think you have a minister, at least in the UK, they have a minister of loneliness. The core of that uh, post is... It's not so much focused on loneliness, it's more focused on social isolation. So social isolation is sort of the objective uh, component of, of social well-being or, or the lack thereof. You have more like an objective lack of social contact. There's different markers. So one of them is living alone and the other one is low connectivity and low social contact and uh, low social participation. So that's sort of the objective side of it all. But then you have the loneliness part, which is more like the subjective uh, component of social well-being. And that can be quite different from social isolation. So you have a lot of people that are quite objectively isolated, but nonetheless report really low loneliness and quite high satisfaction with their social situation. And then you have the opposite of that, where you have people who are quite connected, but still feel lonely. It can be tied to different uh, explanations. It can have to do with trauma during childhood, low uh, attachment to your, to your parents, or being teased at school, or going through different trauma of, of some kind. And then that leads to you having problem sort of trusting people and connecting really closely with people but it could also relate to people having very high social standards if you're very active on socials and then you have these really high expectations of social contact and you're not you're sort of never satisfied so the glass is always half empty in a way we often find a, a correlation of 0.2 between the two so that's sort of a quite low correlation so uh, displays how, how how different the two can be so you said something along the lines of people that often feel this way are reported to have traumas from their childhood. One of the main traumas we often hear about is it's to do with parents a lot of the time. Obviously, once the kid's out in the world and they're able to socialise with other people, that's a different story and that's got its own sort of connotations. But when it comes to parents, it's kind of a big one. Now, one of the things that I guess we were talking about earlier, and this is what we wanted to get into, so I guess it's a perfect segue, you know, childlessness versus parenthood. We live in a world where basically being a parent is a stock standard. It's an expectation. It's just a way of life. It's what you do. And if you don't do that, what else are you going to do? Societally, I'm not sure if you're, I guess you know much about this because I know you've studied the happiness levels. Why is it that we attach these norms to being a parent? Well, this is a difficult one. I think it's a very robust uh, sort of standard that's been there for ages. And of course, going back thousands of years, families and communities have needed children. So they the strong social pressure and strong social norm of having children, especially for women. So women are, of all times have felt a strong sort of social pressure, cultural pressure, and which in terms have led to strong personal expectation and preference for children. And with that also perhaps these popular beliefs that we need children to have sort of the right and moral life and we need children to feel fulfilled and that children are essential for a happy marriage. And so it's, it's sort of a robust norm and a strong social expectation that I think has been there for ages that sort of stems from the 
societal need for children and also for social order in a way. Parenthood structures people's life and sort of keeps people in order and uh, and sort of makes uh, for a more predictable and well-functioning society in a way. It's been a social norms forever in a way. But even today we see these norms are strong and there's still a strong stigma attached to choosing to not have children. So you see that people who don't want children would sort of explain that away and sometimes uh, blame other problems instead of being honest about their situation. So it's uh, still a strong social norm, but it's starting to, to fade a little bit, I think. It's becoming more common now to choose way and you have role models in popular culture. So we see at least in the Western countries, at least in the Northwestern European countries, that voluntary childlessness is on a slight increase, but it's still still very uncommon. So when you interview young people about whether they have children or they want children, you would find that just about three to five percent are explicit about not wanting children and men a bit more often than women. So women in general tend to still have this strong inclination and strong preference and ambition and need for children. I guess with women, there's the fear of the body clock too, right? Right. That's true. Yeah. So that that's, uh, adds to the pressure, of course, whereas men, I mean, their ability to have children is also declining after a certain age, but not uh, in yes. the same extent as women. So yeah. And it's something I find that is not talked about because, so I, I knew this chick with her husband, they were trying to have children and she started off quite late in her life. She was like past, I think she was like 35, 36 Society says that your eggs kind of dry out by that point. 35 is like your cutoff, you know. So anyway, they they were trying to have babies and basically they went through absolutely everything and anything you could imagine to the point where she was sickly. She was starting to lose hair because they've tried IVF. They tried putting her on different diets. They would tried hormonal things. They did everything under the sun and they did it for five years so she was like almost 40 by this point. They were just slamming her with everything. And so eventually she decided, um, well, they decided that I'm going to use my sister's egg. Oh, yeah. So then they did that and it almost worked, but then she lost the baby. Basically, the doctor said the problem is actually not you. Yeah, it was the husband. It was a husband all along. Oh, right. Great movie plot. And what? That was a surprising twist. Yeah. I know. And they said because you can carry, because you did. The baby didn't survive, but it wasn't because you couldn't carry the child. It was actually the genetic that came from the father. Mm -hmm. I guess what frustrated me the most is this common expectation that it'll always be the woman. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny that we never talk about how men can also be a problem. If it's not working, it's got to be the woman. I guess the story resonates a bit with me because I've gone through all that. But at the same time, I can't really, I didn't find that that was sort of the uh, implicit uh, or the first reaction in a way that it has to be something wrong with the women. I, I found that going through all these tests and everything, you, you sort of got the objective answer both on the male and the female side in terms of what they can find out about their reproductive abilities. And uh, that sometimes I think it's quite common that they don't find anything wrong in a way but it still doesn't work. It has something to do with the match, perhaps, or genetic things that are not uh, able to be found out about. So I, I can't say that my personal experience or what I know from the literature sort of backs that up. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah. wanted to interrupt. Were they a Western Caucasian couple? Yes. That's very yes. interesting. So I actually saw the show. It's on Netflix. It's called Bling Empire. It's like a reality TV show. It's really trashy. But it's about this Asian couple, really rich Asian couple. 
where the wife basically pretends that it's her fault that they're not able to have the baby and she was lying to the husband's father because they don't want to say that the husband's the one who can't have the baby because oh. the husband's the man and there can be nothing <laughs> wrong with him. Yeah. But I mean, if a, if a couple is uh, seeking help in a relatively old age, 35 to 40, for example, then, then I guess the first reaction could be that it's most likely the women that has uh, something wrong because of their, their biological clock in a way. But uh, I found that also the men were scrutinized in a way. And you have all these tests you need to go through and they, they can at least find out about the obvious thing like sperm counts and all that. But in my own experience uh, from my, our, ourselves and others around us was that often you they wouldn't find find anything wrong and there's an increase in childlessness or infertility in general actually in, in most western countries so it's it's driven largely by uh, this chain of postponements people tend to take uh, longer educations move out to their home la- later tend to actualize themselves and do all this traveling and everything before they settle down with a partner and then they wait even longer for having kids so eventually a larger proportion ends up being too late uh, in a way so i have a question about actualization Everyone's got this idea of what it means to be self-actualized. So can I ask you what it actually is? What What is self-actualization? Yeah, I have no idea what the fuck that means at all. <laughs> I have no idea either, I think. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but it's it has to do with personal growth and development and the sort of meeting your sort of goals in life. You have a bucket list that you want to sort of get through before it's quote-unquote too late when you have children. I can only speak for myself. For myself, I wanted to do certain things before I had kids and settled down. That was, for example, studying in Australia, traveling, doing my master's degree. And yeah, that was sort of my expectations in terms of what I wanted to get out of the way before it was going to go too late. But I, I mean, it's different for everyone. But career is also very central to many people. They, they want to be at a certain stage in their career before they settle down and have children. And then Perhaps your your plans of having children eventually might coincide with uh, with the partnership dissolution. Then you sort of start it all over again, and it might be too late in the end. And uh, people also has perhaps too high expectations in terms of what what can be done from uh, the medical uh, side. We have all these uh, really advanced technical reproductive assistance uh, now technology, but with that, people tend to have these really high expectations that it will be successful in the end. But obviously, that's not the case for everyone. So even though this assistance can help a lot of couples, some couples will end up as permanently childless. I wanted to go back to something you said before, which was mentioning the fact that a lot of couples want to have a child because that'll make for a better marriage. Is that true in your research? Or what have you found out? How does the marriage tend to go after having kids? Like how often does it actually lead to, quote unquote, a happy marriage? Or does it break it down more often than not? This is an interesting one because this field about uh, parental status and well-being has a number of myths. And this is one of them, actually. Young people tend to hold this belief and perhaps also older adults, in a way, have, have these beliefs that uh, children will bind couples closer together and it will be essential for a, for a good marriage and uh, that children are integral to relationship quality and affection and closeness in a relationship. But the data doesn't bear that out. The data shows that it's actually the opposite. So having children doesn't dampen whatever conflicts are there from before. Quite the contrary, you see uh, an increase in relationship conflict and disharmony. So if the marriage is rocky from before, don't have kids. Uh, relationship quality, relationship satisfaction, feelings of being valued, appreciated, and intimacy and 
also the sexual frequency all, all that goes a bit down after yeah, that's after what i the, care after... about it's like because <laughs> I, I was actually listening to someone a researcher who said that intimacy is so important of course these effects are mostly present when the children are young and uh, and co-residing with the parents but uh the, the thing is also that, that dissolution rates are much higher among couples without children. Marriage dissolution can be a good thing and, and a lot of couples are staying together because of the children. So these quite poor quality marriages would stick together because of the children. That, that would also drive some of these mean level findings between childless and couples with children. But also having said all that, I mean, uh, the data also show that people who are struggling with these uh, fertility uh, treatment things uh, they, they also have a lot of uh, increase in tension and a lot of decrease in, in marital or relationship satisfaction so that puts its toll on couple relationship as well at least the transition to childlessness in that stage there you will find a lot of dissolution among couples because they can't seem to agree on strategy or seem to handle it very differently and have a lot of problems in that stage. And I could imagine that there would be a level of resentment as well to some extent if without meaning to, you know, even if I really want a child and my partner can't give me that. Yeah. And that's a dream of theirs that's shattered. It's it's going to create resentment. Yeah, a lot of guilt as well. I mean, if you're struggling with the choice of whether to try to find a different partner, of course, or or if the couple is disagreeing whether to accept uh, sperm donation, egg donation, whether to have the 10th IVF treatment, that kind of thing, then that, of course, would lead to a lot of uh, conflict in in a marriage. I feel like it would be hard to recover from that. Men often don't realize how hard it is for the woman. And a lot of the times men don't often help either. You know, there's no real partnership involved when it comes to raising the child. And I'm not saying this is every man, of course, but a lot of the time men you know, they get to go to work, they get to keep the body the way they want to keep it and they get to do all of that and go out with their friends, enjoy all of that when the woman is at home raising the child. And is there any research, I guess, on that as well, like where women kind of feel dissatisfied in that sense? Yeah. I mean, my first reaction to what you said was that it's also harder during reproductive assistance technology treatment. I mean, uh, Women go through these quite horrible, sometimes, uh, hormone treatments. So it's going through all that places a much stronger burden on, on women than men usually. So uh, so that's another thing. But uh, you were moving on to the um, rearing children, right, and having small children and whether that affects uh, women and men differently. And uh, that's absolutely what the data show. Men's well-being would be quite unaffected on a group level by having children. You would find that women's well-being... And life in general, of course, is much more strongly affected by having children, having small children. So uh, obviously during uh, childbearing and the initial child rearing, you would have a much stronger restrictions on women's life and lead to much more sacrifice and much more toll on their time and energy, sleep problems and uh, stress and all that and hormonal changes. So the data shows that women's well-being tend to decline quite a bit after the birth of a child. So we have all this advanced data set where we interview people every year. And then when we see that there will be sort of a really strong expectation of well-being before the first child. But then uh, during the first couple of years, you would see a strong decrease in well-being. And after about uh, four years, well-being is sort of returning to the baseline level or as close as that as possible. Yeah, there's a couple of tough years after you have the first child, but then eventually you would return more or less to your previous level. 
But when we compare uh, in a more cross-sectional data, uh, parents with young children, we would see that women have uh, are sort of better off without having children, at least in in countries like Australia and uh, in the UK and US. We have a lot of data from these countries, and there you would see that young couples are better off without having children, and especially women. So it has to do with these subgroups of women that uh, have really low well-being, women with low income, low education, and perhaps single women, so single motherhood is of course very challenging, especially if that coincides with residing in a country with low sort of state-based supports for young families that in effect make it really hard, particularly to combine young parenthood with other obligations, for example, employment and other interests and hobbies. It takes its strong toll on well-being in these countries. Whereas in the Nordic countries where we have these really generous welfare-based supports, so-called pro-natalistic policies, we we don't find much effect either way, actually, neither among men or women. So, uh, I mean, the Nordic welfare state seems to uh, facilitate the enjoyment of the, the sort of positive aspects of having children. Which is actually one of the first things I wanted to talk about is, you know, you see this kind of research coming a lot out of Nordic countries, which have kind of been able to give that support at the state level where, you know, you can have children and still be able to you know, financially be okay? Because a lot of times men give that excuse, right? I have to go and earn money. Yeah. What am I supposed to Yeah, there's to do? a number, number of things that we t- I think we take for granted here. We have accessible and affordable healthcare. We have daycare. You can have parental leaves really well paid uh, for a full year. We, um, we, we do. We we do. S- we've only recently... So maternity leave was always there. Um, now paternity and leave now is paternity there. leave is becoming quite apparent nowadays. Yeah. And is that full, fully, fully paid or...? Yeah, so for, I think it's for only for like a couple of months. Couple of months, or not even. I think six months. I think. No, that's for maternity. P- parental leave gets less than that. I don't know how much. I think it's three months or something, or less than that. Mm. But yeah, but can you also have? Not. Are you also entitled to have your your employment, uh, your job back after if you if you choose to be away for a year or two? Can you have your? Are you entitled to? Not always. So there's no real it doesn't say. Um, so it depends on the contract. So there's all these different contracts. Um, if you're in a permanent position and it's your position, you get to keep it. But it's Look, it really depends because you don't get paid for the time always. So, like, it really depends on how much leave you have and all that sort of stuff. Because sometimes they'll yeah. say you can take a sabbatical. Yeah, so... Instead of paid time off. So you have that sabbatical, you can go away and then come back. And another thing is gender equality. So here people, um, couples usually share share the housework and they, the obligations with the children quite equally. So that also, of course, helps, especially women relative to in other countries where it's much more gendered, where women more or less take the lion's share of, of house and children and all that. And that, of course, puts a much stronger toll on their well-being and uh, quality of life. So that's that's also uh, one of the factors that contributes to these relatively high motherhood uh, levels of well-being we find here. Which well, is, I think, a very Western concept. Cause... Well, so, so talking about you know, in Asia especially, I think it's it's easier to have children just because of the support that you have from families. From communities, yeah. And even yeah. here for that matter, South Asian families here tend to have a relatively easier time having children mm-hmm. grow up because they'll have grandparents taking care of them more often than not. And it's a lot easier, in I find, in South Asian families than it would be in Western families because there's so much support from the family. It's part of the culture that, you know, that families want to live together. Although that is changing. 
that's that's the way we most of the Western world used to live before, and uh, might, that might have uh, certain positive aspects of that, uh, especially in terms of motherhood and well-being during the child-rearing years. The big difference that I find in South Asian cultures compared to the Western cultures, it's considered a woman's duty to have yes. a baby rather than a choice. That's the yeah. big difference that I find. But then another complicating factor might be that, especially in more, quote unquote, modern families, the women would prefer to still be working and have all these competing interests. And so in that sense, it's ideal to facilitate the combination of uh, work-life balance, at least in a Nordic uh, context, that would be sort of the key goal of uh, government policies, as well as the, uh, the preference for most uh, families, I think, and women especially. Yeah, I think it's also a religious and cultural factor that yeah. a lot of the concept is still coming from. Yeah. Even even in like, you know, cr- Christianity, which is where most of maybe the Western culture kind of gets its concept. Just really quickly going back to have a child, all the health stuff that women go through, and there's this almost like a desperation or an obsession comes from. Like, why is it so that we're so desperate to just have a child mm-hmm hundreds of thousands of dollars on IVF and stuff like that. You know, what is it about that? And why don't people opt for, I guess, adopting? Yeah, it mirrors the strong expectations we have and the strong wish for and strong drive we have to have children that we sort of won't, we'll never give up. And it also mirrors the, the strong belief we now have in, in these reproductive assistance technology. I mean, in a way, it was easier some decades ago when, when we didn't have all these equipment and assistance and people perhaps had an easier time letting go and moving on and sort of accepting their, their fate in a way. But now, I think increasingly, and also with the couples being much better off financially than before, people can sort of afford all these rounds of treatment. So a lot of people around me has, and, and ourselves also, has gone through all these spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and spending several years and sort of never giving up, always trying the new things and going abroad for different kind of treatments there and sort of never giving up and moving on. And then that might lead to success in the end in a way, but it might also deteriorate your call to life during those years. And the data also show that a lot of couples eventually break up because it puts too much stress on the relationship and on their general well-being. It becomes an obsession in a way, might detract from more real sources of quality of life. Could it be ego as well? If we think about how the world started and, you know, human beings were put on this earth, one of the things that they were always doing was procreating and kind of was the purpose initially so that we have enough people in the world. And also our gene line. Yeah. So after a while, when you can't get something which you consider so basic and the fact that it's been going on for so many years, it becomes an ego thing. You're like, why can't I do this? Because I feel that ego in any task, something that we want to win a gold medal at the Olympics. People train for that for eight years, 12 years. It's funny that having a child has sometimes been seen as a pro-social thing, but in my view, it's more an ego thing. On a deeper level, we all have a strong drive to procreate and that's, that's why we're here. But also there might be a strong innate need to have children in a way, to have the child and to bring your genes on. And that might be true and might be the driver between these obsessions to have children, but also perhaps more to the point in the modern society. I think having children is seen as more unique 
and obvious way to fill all these other needs for self-realization, for uh, filling our need for affiliation, for love, receiving and giving love, for um, for belonging to a group and for social connectivity, and sort of for old age insurance against the isolation and loneliness in later life. So it, it's a multifaceted drive that uh, people have and women especially talk about this unconscious drive that they have to have children. It's a sort of a perpetual question, I think, that there's no definitive answer to. But I think, you see, children are seen as very important to fill a whole range of different needs that we have on a deep level. I think it comes down to we feel like it's our purpose. Like, that is why we're here. Like, you said something really interesting just before where you said that we are put on this earth for it. And maybe they're not exact words, but, you know, as a woman, and I'm not going to lie, I think, you know, I've had this thing where it's an innate sort of natural primitive drive that comes out where I feel the need to nurture. Funnily enough, my sister was telling me about this article that she read. And in the article, they talk about how this generation now often whenever they feel the need to have children or feel the need to nurture, they're getting pets now to do that. Yeah, that's that's not uncommon among childless couples to nurture pets or to have these quasi-parental roles where they nurture others' children, for example, their extended kin's children, or to be, become more involved in, in the community and, and foster other kids. And so that's that's other ways to sort of feel the need for, uh, like you said, for nurturing and uh, affiliation. So with the childless couples, the, the one thing I did want to ask is, you were talking about how a lot of couples or parents can fulfill that need or, you know, that need to nurture or that certain amount of happiness they get, how do childless couples achieve the same? Like most of the time, are they able to just get that that need to have a child or that self-actualization, that growth could come without having a child? The the childless group is, of course, not a uniform group. It's a lot of variation. And, and one thing that separates them is your childless for voluntary or, or involuntary reasons. So I mean, these involuntary childless couple, they go through a, a really tough stage where they try to console themselves and move on and find a new sort of goals and new areas for engagement and meaning. And whereas these uh, voluntary childless couples, they, they already have strong other engagements and roles that sort of in a way gets in the way or, or leads to them not having the same drive for having children. But in a way, uh, both groups uh, have having children restructures your life and has a strong influence of, of your uh, ability to pursue interests and career opportunities, etc. So the, the, the lives of the two groups are, of course, very different. But in general, the data suggests that childless adults are much more involved in careers, a bit more invested in their relationships, so that they would report stronger closeness with the partner. And they also meet friends more often. They go out to cultural events more. They eat more out and they exercise more. And importantly, also, they do much less uh, housework. So uh, that the, sounds the pretty good are... to me. Yeah, I hate housework. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I, I think no, yeah. knowing all these things, Thomas, when did you kind of decide you did want to have kids? Yeah, and what, yeah, I find that really fascinating because you've said that you started this study because you were very much interested in Yeah. That. Yeah. It's funny because I, having this overview of the, of the literature and uh, struggling to have children, we, I still have that had that strong drive to have, for to have children so i'm sort of a extreme case of that not buying the the myth about uh, happiness but still wanting to have children so what is that all about I, I feel that 
Well, societal pressures, I think, is works on everyone on a more subtle level. So it's it's <laughs> yeah. hard to to uh, circ- to get around that. But uh, was it your mom? Uh, was it your mom, <laughs> Thomas? Was it your mom? It might have. It might have been. Yeah. Yep. My mom was pu- pushing me to the edge. Yep. But uh, no, as, as I felt uh, in a way, the sort of uh, what's it called, the unbearable likeness of being uh, phenomenon. That I was in my late thirties, and life just—I just needed uh, something outside of myself, a, a project, a, a bit wider project, than just uh, filling my life in my own self pursuits. So I think for me, it was uh, making life more meaningful. It's—it's it's a bit like uh, Roy Baumeister, the very famous uh, American social psychologist, who said that uh, having children. Is, it's not a good strategy to make life happier, but it's an excellent one for making it more meaningful. And I think that's where I was at myself. Uh, I was a bit struggling with finding meaning and purpose and direction, or I was a bit tired of my own old ways of living. So that, that was sort of the, the drive for me, I think. And have you? <laughs> it's funny because on a more, especially on a more like uh, armchair level, having children leads to uh, obviously to a strong sense of meaning in life and direction and purpose and structure to life in every way but but what I've also come to to realize especially now during the holiday that it's, it it also detracts from a purpose in life because because the, the, your real life online sort of day-to-day situations with children can be quite tedious frustrating boring and <laughs> and detract from your other more uh, your strong ways of finding purpose in life so in a way I would rather go cycling in the woods or uh, <laughs> or I mean listen to music reading a book a pursuing work or something that are strong goals for me and strong areas of meaning i would rather do that than spending three or four hours by the, by the pool every day or the or, or the <laughs> <laughs> or doing all these other activities so to, to be honest it's having kids is a pros and cons situation it gives you a more global sense of meaning of course it structures your life and gives it direction but it can also detract from other areas of engagement and purpose and i think that's why because uh, even though by my said that uh, having kids in this is an excellent strategy for making life more meaningful I, the data shows that there are almost no differences in terms of meaning and purpose in life between childless adults and and couples with children so th- i think that's that sort of uh, mirrors that uh, these childless couples they find other ways to sort of feel the need for engagement and meaning and purpose does your wife feel the same My or, wife or does she have same. a different experience no i think she she would agree but uh I think uh, what you would find when you ask parents, it's a very different, they give a very different response when they're actually taking care of the kids, whereas what they would respond uh, during campfire over a glass of wine in the <laughs> evening when the, when the kids are all in bed. So the uh, it's a much more gloomy situation if you ask them on, on uh, while they're taking care of the kids. Interestingly, there's a line of research that uh, explores well-being more on an online real-time level. You have a set of respondents, uh, several hundred respondents, and then you you would text them or phone them at random points of the day <laughs> and ask them a set of questions. And especially interesting is that they ask, what are you doing and how are you feeling? So they, then you can associate different activities with your well-being. Whereas parents would say, uh, commonly, they would report that spending time with kids is the most enjoyable thing they do. But when you have this more uh, online data, you would find that having when you're spending time with your kids 
your happiness level would be rock bottom or it would be one of the one of the activities that you do that has associated with the lowest level of well-being on par with the housework and commuting to work shopping mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah, yeah whereas whereas your happiness will be much higher when you exercising you're meeting friends you're doing all these other things that's obviously childless couples are doing much more often than parents. one last thing just one last thing <laughs> from that Go so you it. said that happiness might be at rock bottom i'd be very curious to know are they still feeling like their life is meaningful even though the happiness is yeah. just to find that correlation between the two exactly and that's an interesting one and that's one of the flaws of this data set that they hasn't asked about that at the same time whether you feel a sense of purpose and engagement and whether you feel a strong sense of meaning and uh, whether you take a lot of self satisfaction or or a lot of a strong sense of meaning from providing your kids with these activities and these joys and uh, giving them these uh, childhood memories and childhood experiences because that's what I, I find myself that on one level doing all these sacrifices and spending all this time on these quite frustrating and activities full of hassle and, and boredom it's a challenge but at the same time it's very rewarding on the more cognitive armchair level but uh, like you said this data set it would be it would be a strong benefit if we had asked about that as well but unfortunately that's not being asked here so here we only have data about their level of joy level of satisfaction with life and level of happiness at the moment and uh, like i said these mean level scores on these indicators are quite low when you're taking care of your kids so that speaks to how frustrating and, and how much negative effect that's being involved sometimes with your activities with children but i guess most parents would say that these negative experiences are balanced by the intense joys you feel now and then in between and that makes up for the all the challenges that you you experience a few things that i got from everything you've just said is one that i think we have to understand that when it comes to happiness it's a fleeting moment and yeah. even people that are childless will have times of unhappiness in other aspects of their lives and then when we talk about you know meaning when it comes to meaning i think it takes a little bit of time to create meaning and that means performing fairly tedious tasks you know when you talk about careers if that's what your meaning is like that's what brings you purpose or that's what kind of gives you something meaningful you know you got to climb that ladder you've got to do all those tedious tasks to get there but thomas did have like career ambitions right well, but see, he that's still the fe- thing. but and he still felt that he didn't have that meaning and that's what's bothering me i'm trying to figure it out i think though that meaning is different to everyone and that's the thing so we we often i think with humans and i you can correct me if i'm wrong because you're the you know scientist here you know i think with humans we often have a different version of what meaning is and that will change as we get older too right so it's never going to stay the same yeah and i've been criticized sometimes for making light of i mean it's it's a bit more complicated than that people are having children to become happier i mean it's it's also because people want children not despite of all these these challenges and sacrifice but precisely because of it in a way yes. so i mean it, it's not like anyone would want sort of a religious paradise in a way where we we just have these positive emotions and everything is just pure happiness we we do sort of need and want these contrasts and the richer experiences that involved struggles challenges self sacrifice but also these deeper experiences of joy and uh, pride and uh, it's like we don't want to just uh, be on the top of the mountain we also want to to make the ride 
the hike up there. So we, we want the yin and the yang in a way. I think what you said is, you know, the sacrifice bit, which I think stood out to me the most. I think we all we all talk about sacrifice in a concept of it's a part of giving, right? Like where we take something away from us to give to another. And I think when we talk about meaning and giving, I think, uh, and this is something I asked someone some time ago who was a social psychologist, and I said, is there a link between self-satisfaction and giving to others, which you know, the giving part is sacrificing your time, your energy to please or help another. And is there sort of a link between the two? I think for humans, it's often quick or easy to be like, the best idea I have right now to self-sacrifice is to have a child, which will Mm. equal meaning to me. Whereas you have people that are activists or that are, you know, doing other things that often don't have children a lot of the time, but that's because they're sacrificing and that's giving them meaning. I think there's a, there's a deeper human need in most people to, to be there for others, to provide for others and, and sort of play a role in other people's well-being and other people's life. And there's, of course, different ways to do that than one of them. A notable one is, of course, to have children. And I think that's a drive in us in a way. And, and also uh, that leads to, to happiness. And the happiness literature, interestingly enough, it shows that uh, your level of happiness is higher when you're when you're receiving uh, now when you're you're giving a gift or when you're giving help than when you're receiving a gift or receiving help at least some data show that so that's that's quite interesting and it sort of provides evidence for these notions that uh, we want and we need and we, we benefit from helping others and being there in in other people's lives this idea of which you mentioned a while ago was you know sometimes a lot of people have kids because they want that guarantee that when they get older they're not isolated i'm curious to know if that is actually the case because i feel like a lot of parents have that expectation of kids to take care of them and sometimes when those expectations are not met they feel resentment as well in old age it's a common uh, understanding or conception that that you need children in order to feel fulfilled in later life and that not having children would jeopardize your well-being and lead to loneliness, depression and particularly regrets about not having children. But the data doesn't uh, bear that out. The data seems to suggest that uh, levels of loneliness and mental health problems and well-being is quite even between couples with and without children in later life. I think that speaks to different things. First of all, an important factor that we haven't touched upon so far is that genes and, and dispositions have such a strong influence on your well-being. So people that tend to see the world optimistically and the glass is half full instead of half empty, they would do that in different circumstances. So, I mean, negative life events can be disappointment and momentarily or, or initially lead to a deterioration of well-being, but eventually you would sort of fall back to your stable baseline genetic determined level of well-being. So that contributes to a lot of these stable, these non-zero findings that we talked about. Initially, couples without children go through a crisis, but later on, they eventually move back to their sort of personality determined level. The data seems to show that in later life, it doesn't matter so much whether you have children or not. And these older couples with adult children that can lead to enjoyment and satisfaction, but it could also lead to disappointment and frustration and being let down by not being visited in uh, in the weekends or they they don't call me as often as I'd pleased yeah. and they <laughs> frustrated by their kids choice of partner for example 
And they say that uh, you're only as happy as your least happy child. So um, <laughs> your, your children's problems are are affecting you big time also in later life. So um, having children is sort of a gamble. It uh, can be an enrichment, but it can also be uh, a challenge in many ways, also in later life. Koda is trying to find which of her siblings, including her, is the least happy child. <laughs> so Sahil's only, you know, he's the only child, whereas I've got two other siblings. So I'm, all, yeah. I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> it's funny though, because yeah, I, I was thinking it and you just said it, that you go to retirement homes. And I, I did some volunteer work at Retirement Village and all they ever talk about these old people is their children and how their children and they are lonely like you find a lot of the time their children actually never visit and you know I feel like it's really interesting that we often think to ourselves you know that our children will be there forever we don't we never consider that it might not happen and that's even worse than at least if you don't have kids and you think oh whatever I didn't have them that was my choice I think there can be a level of frustration and disappointment. And I, I feel that personally, I'm quite good at uh, taking contact with my own parents, even though they live far off. But sometimes I feel that imagine if my own kids are going to be just as distant and rarely contacted me when I'm old. And how the, the feelings that I get from that is, is such a, a drag. I mean, uh, because you, you are so close to them when they co-reside with you. But after you move out, that uh, can become a quite distant relationship. And perhaps your everyday uh, closer community level or friendship level social ties are much more important to your everyday well-being and if you're sort of stuck with the mindset of the glass being half empty when it comes to the level of contact you have with your kids and the sort of genuine interest they show in your life and and etc then that can be a, a strong source of disappointment in later life it depends on the type of contact that you have and your sort of relationship quality and how well the children are doing. If they have mental health problems, if they get divorced or have health problems or financial issues, then that bears a strong toll on your own well-being, even though you're uh, approaching 80, 90 years old. Thinking about that, I have a question. If you do want to have a child, when should you have a child? Well, the data at least suggests that having children in a young age is not too good. That's associated with poorer outcomes in terms of uh, especially the mother's well-being. It depends a bit whether you take the child's perspective or the parents, but I guess both of them align a bit. If you if you have kids, I would say in the late 20s, early 30s, where you, you would still have the energy level during your children's childhood uh, to commit and to contribute and do all the things you want and uh, to really be there for your kids. And at the same time, be in a place in your life where you have more emotional stability, perhaps, and you're more in place in terms of career and other other pursuits. Because if you have children too early, then perhaps you would have competing interests that might be stressful to combine with uh, rearing children. So at least uh, not having them too early is a good idea. But then if you have them a bit too late, like myself in a way, then uh, that can be a problem also in terms of energy levels and also uh, being there for them when when you have your grandchildren. If you have grandchildren, then you might be too old to really be there and uh, take part in that. It's hard to say a definitive answer, but uh, I would say in the... Yeah, but that's kind of what I wanted was the was the fact At least in a Western culture where, where uh, people, most couples would prefer to maintain employment and to, to sort of uh, to have a strong uh, preference for uh, beneficial work-life balance. 
in other cultures it might be different if both partners have a preference and uh, they foresee the woman for example moving out of employment and just taking care of family then things might play out differently we talk about childhood trauma starting from parents and it's that's why i guess it's important that parents are very aware and ready to have a child so i guess what's your advice for people having realistic expectations as as important of course and uh, that's also i think speaking more from personal experience than from from data i would say that that's having children later makes for much more realistic expectations because you have seen friends going through it and you have a much more precise information i think and expectation in terms of what it all involves in terms of the sacrifices you need to do and how things might change in terms of how you relate to your partner and uh, and family relationships beyond that of course and i actually did want to thinking about myself and probably other as well but definitely for myself i come from a country where population has been a big problem and i'm not sure if it's just the media but we're pretty aware of the fact that the earth is not probably in the best place possible right now and we have global warming climate change shitty politicians covid-19 yeah. and overconsumption and wastage and it might be making it too simplistic but i've always felt like for a country like india where i come from if we were able to educate and reduce the population a lot of our problems would go away keeping that in mind should we be thinking about the kind of future that we'll be able to provide our kids given especially with what's happening with the environment or was it a consideration that people do think about right now like people that you might have data on yeah the the world is not in such a great place right now so it's not the best place to bring children in the needs of the sort of the planet and the and families are not aligned the planet needs less people but yeah. families keep wanting children and also politicians try to facilitate higher fertility rates especially in the western countries where we see a steep drop in fertility rates and even in Norway the Norwegian prime minister has sort of urged people to have more kids and and we also have these strong so state based supports for that so we sort of the ideal place to have kids and we have all these incentives and sort of society are is sort of uh, organized around families in a way the problem here is that people are sticking to the one or two children norm before more people would have three or more kids but now people are are having fewer kids and also there's an increase in childlessness but but it's like uh, for the planet that's a good thing but uh, for uh, countries communities families that seems to be a an unwanted thing so it's uh, it's a contrast there that's uh, hard to reconcile i think and uh, there's a lot of, of problems and concerns related to falling birth rates which might in turn lead to problems uh, f- funding and uh, funding the the welfare uh, state but also to take care of the the b- large boom of uh, aging adults uh, yep. in in age, aging populations like like the most western societies that's yeah that's what they always say is is that idea that there's too much the pressure ratio. on the economy if there's yeah. not enough people being born but there's more older people exactly it's a big problem of course which eventually would be solved a lot through immigration i think and uh, and that's also a, a problem because it it takes away need, much needed resources in these uh, poorer non western countries so it's a it's a complicated issue it is very um, complicated it's just about chucking people from here to there it's <laughs> he's like i'll just do it <laughs> no but migration is only going to become harder i mean looking mm, at uh, what, what's happening right now but, uh, with the virus in contrast yeah but it's a bit like in contrast to what trump is saying we they're not giving us our best people but they, here is a bit of opposite we're 
taking much needed healthcare uh, uh, professionals from from non-Western countries to contribute in our own uh, healthcare systems in a way. Wow, um, I never even thought about it like that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a complicated issue with uh, multifaceted, and uh, it depends which perspective you you're taking. I think. Yeah, and especially with you know the massive refugee population that's in Syria, yeah. in in the Middle East in general. You know, a lot of countries have now started going. Okay, we can't have more. Yeah, it it feeds uh, right wing um, policies. I mean, I, I guess we could just go on and on, but we've actually got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so and I, I think, think you'll have to go uh, because pool lessons. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I'm I'm finding a lot of purpose right here and now. I oh, think okay. I have to go. You're finding <laughs> meaning. <laughs> you're finding purpose. <laughs> just keep on thinking. Just repeat. <laughs> Glad to help you uh, out there, Thomas, and give you a bit of a yeah. you know break from it all. <laughs> Yeah, that this was, was interesting. Like a, actually, we trying to figure out, do we want kids? Like, it's a good thing. So this was so really the two, helpful. The data also doesn't seem to suggest that people regret not having kids. If that was their choice, then in later life, they don't sort of all of a sudden have this negative life review and, and a lot of regrets and depression over that. I think people find purpose and meaning in the actual circumstances and they don't tend to go back and wish they've done things differently. That's actually a really good point, you know, the one thing was that I was afraid of not being able to have children, you know, with my biology and stuff that I started running for the clock. Like I started chasing the clock and I find that a lot of the time when people do that, they end up settling down with the wrong person, you know, and they rush into decisions. can't say that I've researched that, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially women become very stressed if they really want children and they've turn 30, 35 years old. And it's easily, I can easily imagine that they could make poor choices in terms of partner or other things. So that's that's obviously true, I think. But I think the data suggests that if you're a reasonably happy person, you would be reasonably happy no matter what you do and you won't regret it. I've been criticized because I sort of imply that uh, parenthood doesn't give you much joy. And uh, these are characterizations that most parents, that doesn't resonate too well because they do find that the role gives them a lot of pleasure and meaning and self-satisfaction. And I think that's true. And also I'm acutely aware of that myself in my, uh, my everyday experiences. But I think that it's a tendency among parents to sort of forget or not admitting to the more more challenging sides as well. And when they have a glass of wine in the evening, they, they forgot about the three hours of intense boredom at the playground. Or, well, that's why or, they had the glass of wine. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> it's actually funny that you say that, Tom, because I find that with women a lot, right? They talk about childbirth yeah. as being a horrendous experience at the time. Like, I, can't, I could never do this again. And then, you know, a year later and they're pregnant again. It's actually a yeah. thing, you yeah, know, women do forget. I don't know. There's a hormone in your body that makes you... You tend to forget that. Yeah. And I think that's with anything, really. Like when you consider, you know, people that have been heartbroken in relationships, like, yeah, you'll find some that are like, I'm never going to love again. I'm never going to trust again. But then Mm. a lot of these people can often meet someone new and and find the capacity to love and trust. Um, I think that's the human nature, really, more than anything that we're talking about. Like kind of forget our struggles because, and I think this is something I feel like you resonate with this as well it's the fact that you know human beings will always go through hardship in life and i think that's the one thing that helps us understand happiness in itself you know meaning in itself yeah 
But also there's a lot of self-deception involved in terms of not remembering or, or, or at least not conveying to others these challenges. So I think also it's a lot of cognitive dissonance involved. If you were to admit that something you spend so much time and energy on would not give you any pleasure and happiness. And that's part of the reason why, why you would say both to yourself and to others that this role is so rewarding, etc. And a last point is that uh, parenthood is sort of a club where you complain to other parents, but across the aisle you wouldn't complain then you would sort of more convey the positive things and sort of brag about uh, your happy moments during yeah. your holiday weekend and post that on social media etc within the club you would uh, you would complain about how how frustrated you are or mm. how much le- how little sleep you had etc so it's uh, that's it's that too yeah well that note <laughs> I think we should uh, let Thomas go and... I know. Thanks. It's been interesting. So thanks for the chat, guys. No, thank Thank you you. for coming on. It was awesome talking to you and you've given us so much insight and a lot to think about. And thank you for taking out the time given you're in Sweden right now and I hope your kids really, really (laughs) pester you today. Like they're really... Get on top of your nerves today. I really hope that well, happens. Well, with this, I got one and a half hour off uh, the <laughs> childcare, so that's uh, yeah. well, it was a win, win-win wait. situation. <laughs> Not wait for uh, you to have that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank, Thank you. you. See you. See you. Bye bye.